Hi, everybody. We are all equally prepared to be here. Um, it is so good to be with you. The, the only problem with Greg asking me to come and do this was I was planning on spending about six hours today preparing myself mentally and emotionally for the Vikings game. Um, <laughs> Because we have a track record of screwing this up. And I, I just, I needed to get myself in the right place to handle what was going to happen. Um, and I couldn't do it. So yeah, it's, it's very sad. Um, but uh, seriously though, uh, I, I'm honored to be here. And one of the caveats I just need to give is that Greg did email me his notes, which if, if you've ever wondered what the inside of Greg's brain looks like, <laughs> it, I mean, he's a genius, but it's a convoluted place. So, um, so I'm just going to say anything that might strike as heresy, just pass that one on to Greg. If you have any other comments, I'd be willing to receive those after the service. Um, but we are diving into our next uh, week in our Next Level Relationship series, which uh, for me has been really fun. The last week was uh, a great start. Greg started us off, and we're, we're looking at this metaphor of moving. Uh, because we believe that all relationships are moving somewhere. You're either moving closer, you're moving further away, you're either becoming uh, more intimate as friends, or you're becoming less intimate as friends. And so last week, Greg, uh, he, he kind of went on uh, uh, excitement over diagrams. So I want to show you a few diagrams just as a review. The first one is that to explain that we all have this God-shaped hole in us. And it's this hole that is specifically designed for God to fill. And the design of God is this next diagram, which is that the life, the love, the joy, the peace of God would flow from God to us. And then when we are in relationship, we exist in relationship in an overflow of what God has already given us. But if you're anything like me, sometimes you don't quite get all that life from God. And to the degree that we don't get that life from God, the picture looks like this, which as Greg talked about last week, it just means we suck, um, which means we suck life from status, from wealth, from fame, from good looks, from how people think of me, from appearance, all these different ways that if I'm not getting my life from God, I start being a drain and a leech on other people to try and get the life that I'm supposed to get from God, but I'm not getting it, so I need to get it somewhere. And so this week, we're going to be looking at uh, our movement is moving deeper. So it's about moving deeper into relationships that are more vulnerable, that are more honest, that are more authentic, that are more real. And uh, one of my favorite authors is a woman named Brene Brown. Any Brene Brown fans? Woo! All the shameaholics in the room. Um, so Brene Brown talks about vulnerability, and she says that vulnerability is about uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And who doesn't love all three of those things? <laughs> Uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And then she goes on to say that the only on-ramp to vulnerability is the courage to show up looking imperfect. The only on-ramp to vulnerability is the courage to show up looking imperfect. And the only on-ramp to intimacy and relationship is vulnerability. So if you do the math, if I want intimate, authentic relationships, the only road goes through the courage to look imperfect followed by vulnerability. And is it any wonder we avoid those? Those real, deep, authentic relationships. Because we all hide in some way. We all have some aspect and part of us that we use to hide who we really are so that 
we, we don't have to experience what it feels like when people actually see the real us and they don't like it. Um, I, I hide in a lot of ways, and I'll just share one with you. Uh, one of the ways I hide is I ask questions, which this is kind of inside baseball for me. Uh, but what I do is I ask a lot of questions, and it can feel like I'm just interested and I'm a good listener, but I got to be honest, sometimes I don't care, but... I don't want you to ask me questions, so if I just keep lobbing the questions, I don't have to, have to experience what it feels like for you to ask me them. And I think we all hide, and we all hide in different ways. And, and one of the most poignant scriptures about how we hide and why we hide and where we hide is the story of the fall in Genesis 2 and 3, and so that's what we're going to look at today. So before we do that, would you pray with me? Father God... I'm so grateful for this morning, for this community of people, for your care, and uh, I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would flood over this place, over my words. I just proclaim that I am not prepared, and we need you, God, so would you speak, and I thank you that it's in our weakness. You say you are strongest, so I proclaim that. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 All right, so uh, we are going to do three things this morning just to kind of give you the framework. We're going to look at the four dimensions of the fall, and then we're going to look at the four dimensions of salvation, and then we're going to wrap it all together talking about Dr. King. So you ready? Okay. All right. So Genesis 2.25 is where we're going to start, and here's what it says. The man, Adam, and his wife Eve were both naked. And they felt no shame. And the word naked is the Hebrew word arum. Let's say it together. Arum. Yes. Well done. So arum is the word for naked, but also it's the, the connotation of vulnerable. That when you're sitting before God in a place of vulnerability, that this is how God originally created us to be. He created us to be vulnerable, to be able to sit with God because it's in our vulnerability that we can give and receive love. Because when I'm vulnerable, I haven't put up all the blocks of how I hide. Because to the degree that I'm hiding is to the degree that I can't receive the love of God that's supposed to be coming down so I overflow. And so Adam and Eve were in this perfect place where they're made in the image of God and he's, he's letting his love flow through them and they're flowing it out to others. But it's not where the story ends because it continues. And here's what it says in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty which is also the word arum, hmm. than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God did say you sh- shall not eat the fruit of the tree in the garden, fruit of the, of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you will die. Now, Greg has talked a lot about this passage, and I want to kind of take a little different spin on it by focusing on the wordplay that's in here, because in Genesis 2.25, the word for naked is arum. And in Genesis 3.1, the word for the craftiness of the serpent is arum, which I think that there is something going on here that hints at a key aspect of what it means to live a vulnerable life. Because there are two types of our room. There, on the one hand, there is a nakedness there is in our room that increases our vulnerability and it provides opportunities for my relationships to grow deeper and for me to be seen as I actually am. But on the other hand, there is in our room and a nakedness that is seen as my final barrier to letting people in. Like in my nakedness, my skin ends up being the final barrier that bars you from getting to know me. 
It's the final thing that if, if I choose to walk in a room of vulnerability, that you might see something that I don't like or that I don't want you to see. And so most of us choose the arum of hiddenness versus the arum of vulnerability. And it's a constant struggle. And it's the struggle that Adam and Eve had to recognize that our arum is an opportunity for intimacy rather than to use it to erect walls that are higher and higher and higher to keep other people out because I just don't trust you. But the story doesn't end there. So here's where we go in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired, well, was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were a room. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made loincloths for themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, to Adam, and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I was a room and I hid myself. And I hid myself. We have the option to choose the arum of vulnerability or the option to choose the arum of hiddenness, but I can't have them both. And when we choose the arum of hiddenness, the shame starts coming in. That I'm not being real. I'm not being who I said I was. I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not religious enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not any other enough that we use. And I, and I wondered if, as, as Adam and Eve eventually get ushered out of the garden, that Eve is thinking to herself, I really thought this was going to go differently. <laughs> I really thought that I was desiring this fruit and that it was going to make me more like God, and yet it actually distanced me from God. Have you ever had an experience where you're trying something and you think it's going to help you, but it actually ends up burning you in the end? You ever do something where you think it's going to get you closer to God, but it actually just kind of flips it on its head. It, it's that moment where you thought something was going to help you see, but it ended up making you more blind. I think we've all been there. And, and here's the deal. When you prep a sermon in 24 hours, um, you don't have much time to think of different analogies. So here was the one I thought of. Um, I thought of crystal clear Pepsi. Naturally. What a weird brain. Um, but here's the deal. Do you guys remember Crystal Clear Pepsi? It was the Pepsi that looked like 7-Up and tasted like gross. It, uh, it was like, it, 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 like, I thought this was going to be good because the can said Pepsi. And then when I open it up, it's like, well, that's 7-Up and I like 7-Up. But then it didn't taste like either and it was terrible. It's like that moment where you expect something, but it doesn't actually deliver what it was supposed to. And I think we've been there and Eve was there. Which leads us to the four dimensions of the fall. And these are the arum of hiddenness. These are the ways and the how and the why that we hide. So the first dimension of the fall is the lie. And it's ultimately at its core a lie about the character of God. It's a lie that God can't be trusted. That God is actually not for you. That he says he loves you but when you mess up he's going to stomp on you. 
that judgment is coming. And Eve started to believe the lie. And what she didn't realize is that when she believed the lie, it cut off the stream of life that was coming to her from God. And not only did it destroy her relationship with God, it destroyed her relationship with others because then she just starts sucking life out of people. And so the lie has all of these massive implications because what happened is when the, the love and life of God stopped flowing, she started seeing the world with hungry eyes. Everything was a source that she needed because her soul was starving. And I've hung out with some people, especially in a number of other countries, who are just desperately hungry. And what I've found is that when I hang out with people that are desperately hungry, they tell me that what at one point had been, would have been totally revolting started to look delicious. I remember when I talked to the first person who said when they ate their first cockroach because they were just that hungry. And it actually started looking delicious because when we look at the world with hungry eyes, we get trapped in this lie that that's what's going to bring life. And it leads to the second dimension of the fall, which is idolatrous performance. What's fascinating is that Eve grabbing onto the fruit is the first instance we have of recorded history of somebody trying to acquire worth outside of God. It's the first time anybody had an inkling that all their life didn't come from God and so now I need to grab it in other places. And when Eve did that, it had ripples throughout history. Because in a fallen, hungry state, when we have desires like worth and significance and security, those are God-given desires, but when God is not meeting them, we try and meet them by performance. By just performing well and just doing the game right. And I think we all have kind of shticks that we use to perform. So mine, my, mine is, um, I, I like to be competent. I like to crank out competence. Which, if you're somebody who likes to look smart and looks, likes to look competent, the idea of prepping a sermon in 24 hours is mildly disconcerting, uh, to say the least. Because... What I know about me is that when I am not getting all my life from God, I'm depending on life by you thinking I'm smart. And then if you do think I'm smart, well, that's great, but it just perpetuates the lie that I think that's where I get my life. And so it just means I need to crank out and crank out and crank out and perform and perform and do better and be smarter and, be more, and all the things. And yet it's a lie because I'm performing. But we all perform in different ways, don't we? I, I know some folks, I'm sure it's none of you, um, who perform by trying to be the funniest person in the room. Or people that perform by trying to be the most religious person in the room. Or trying to be the wealthiest person in the room. Or trying to be the, uh, the person that just is right about everything. You know, the perfectionist. The one who just, well, they, they've never run into a question they didn't have all the answers for. But the danger is we're never actually known when we do that. Because the only version of me you know if I'm cranking out competence to perform is the version that I put out. Because I'm not sure if you actually knew me, you'd be okay with me. And I think that's the core root of it all. Which leads to the third dimension of the fall, which is hiding. Because if I'm not sure you're okay with me and I need to perform to get you okay with me, then I'm going to hide the parts of me that I don't think you can handle. The part of me that I don't want you to know. And for Adam and Eve, it started out by physically hiding, but then it was hiding behind accusations. Because God came to Adam and said, well, why'd you eat the fruit? And Adam said, well, she gave it to me. Which is, it's great marital advice. And, 
And then God came to Eve and said, well, why'd you eat the fruit? And she said, well, the serpent gave it to me. And I think the reality is that we all hide behind accusations to some degree. It's, well, why'd you do that? Well, you know, you know, I mean, everybody's kind of doing it. Or it, it, it's like we just fit into the hiding by lying and accusing. And, and I've often wondered, like, why didn't Adam and Eve just come clean? Like, we could have just avoided this whole fall thing. And, at, like, if, if God comes up to Adam and Eve and says, well, why'd you eat the fruit? And they said, oh, yeah, sorry, we knew you said no, our bad. Um, but the reality is that in order to keep up the hiding and keep up the performance, you can't come clean. Because all of the junk and the garbage that is the shame underneath that then starts coming out too. And if I'm living in the place of hiding and shame, I can't deal with that. That if I'm trying to crank out competence, it's because I'm hiding insecurity. Or if I'm trying to crank out humor, it's because I'm, uh, I'm hiding the fear that's underneath that. Or if I'm trying to hang, uh, crank out being the most religious person in the room, it's because I'm so scared of my doubts that I'm not sure I believe any of this. And so we crank out the performance, we crank out the performance, and we're not actually known, and eventually it leads to the fourth dimension of the fall, which is death. And as Eve quoted God in the passage we, uh, we read, in the day that you eat of the tree, you will die. And now it doesn't say I will kill you because sin throughout scripture is organic in nature. That sin has its own consequence. That when you walk in this way and if you say to the God of all life and the God of all love, I don't want to have anything to do with you, the only place to go is death. And so the fall moves us in this place of lying to performing to hiding to dying. Let's close in prayer. Um, <laughs> Which leads us to my two favorite words in the New Testament. But God. But God. But God. It is the great reversal in Scripture. That while we were yet enemies of God, he actually showed up. And we're going to look at it in the four dimensions of salvation. But this is the arum of vulnerability. This is the path to vulnerability. This is the path to relationship that is authentic and real. And I'm going to blow through these kind of quick, so try and stick with me. Um, so the first one is that truth dispels the lie. That the lie is about the character of God and Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life because if I want to know what God looks like, I look at Jesus and he reminds me that God is not vindictive. God is self-sacrificial, other-oriented love. And to the degree that I'm paying attention to him, the lie gets broken. So I focus on the truth so that the lie is broken down. And the second, a room of vulnerability, the second dimension of salvation is that grace dispels performance. Grace dispels performance. We get the love for free and we don't have to earn it because we can't earn it. I love the way that uh, the authors of a book called True Face describe this. They, uh, they, they have this section that is about God talking to us. It's called the New Testament Gamble. So check this out. So God says, what if I tell them there are no lists? What if I tell them I don't keep a log of their past offenses, of how little they pray, of how often they've let me down, made promises they don't keep? What if I tell them they're righteous with my righteousness right now? 
What if I tell them they can stop beating themselves up? They can stop being so formal and stiff and jumpy around me. What if I tell them I'm crazy about them? What if I tell them that even if they run to the ends of the earth and do the most horrible, unthinkable things, that when they come back, I'd receive them with tears and a party? Whoo! And you know what happens when I receive that and hear that is I get filled and I don't suck anymore. (laughs) I have indescribable worth. There are no ifs, ands, and buts about it because I get to receive what God gives me and I don't have to live out of what you guys think of me. I don't have to do it. It's one of the reasons I love this community at our church called The Refuge, which, uh, amen. So if you didn't know, the tagline for The Refuge is a community of grace and truth because we all need communities where the truth dispels the lies and the grace rebukes performance. And if you do not have a community where the truth is dispelling the lies running through your head about who you are and who God is, and if you do not have a place that reminds you you don't have to perform to be okay, check out the refuge. It's a good place. Um, Where am I? Okay, which leads me to the third part of the dimension of salvation, which is that vulnerability dispels hiding. Because everything is settled on the cross, (laughs) I don't have to worry about it. I can be honest with you and not fear what you'll think of me because there are no points for having it together. There are no points for having it together. You don't get extra crowns. Like it, It's just we get to show up as we are with God. And the caveat is that the level of vulnerability should match the level of your relationship. That there is such a thing as TMI. There is such a thing as oversharing. And it's not necessarily because it's rude. It's because our bubble where we protect ourselves behind our hiding and our performing is such a dangerous place to let somebody in because when they burn you, how high are those walls going to go up next? So we need to be thoughtful about who we're vulnerable with, but we also all need to have a place where we can show up with who we are. Amen? Amen. Which leads us to the fourth dimension of salvation, which is that life and wholeness dispel death. Life and wholeness dispel death because I don't have to worry if like this part of me that I'm, uh, like this this, uh, thoughtful and this intelligent and this um, creative part of me, I don't need that to make you feel like I'm okay because I get all my life from God. And I overflow and I give you what I got and if you don't like it, I'm sorry. (laughs) And it's the same with all the things that we use to just crank out competence, to crank out humor, to crank out religiosity, any of those things that to the degree I get all my life and wholeness from from God, I don't really care about what you think. Um, I mean, I'm interested, but it doesn't control me. It doesn't tell me who I am. So we're going to try and apply some of this. And uh, because I told you that I hide behind questions, I have some questions for you. Um, So in all our relationships, what would it look like to be more honest, to go deeper in those relationships? And if you're real, if we're real, what are we hiding? What are we hiding and why? What are we afraid will happen if we speak the truth? 
James 5.16 says that we are to confess our sins, and when we confess our sins, we will receive healing. And yet sometimes the prospect of healing is not enough to get us to be honest and to get us to be truthful. And there are things that we need healing from, and there are things that we need to be truthful about for us individually, for us as a church, but also for us as a society, for us as a culture. And this is one of the things that Dr. King did so incredibly is that he spoke truth into the issue of racism. He spoke truth into the issue of race relations. He actually took these dimensions that when he heard the lie of racism that one person is more valuable because of the color of their skin, he spoke the truth of the gospel into it. And when he heard that people were trying to perform out of that lie, he brought grace into it. And when he saw that people were hiding behind that lie, he brought vulnerability of his own feelings with it. And when he saw that people were dying because of it, he brought his own life and he gave his own life for it. And it's one of the things that we need to learn from because this, this centuries of oppression, this centuries of systematic injustice, this overall silence of the church is something that Dr. King exposed the lie of. And he exposed it in a lot of ways, but primarily it was Calvary-like ways of nonviolence. And he did it not just to be nonviolent, he did it to wake us up. And by us, I mean people that look like me. And here's what he said. We who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface hidden tension that is already alive. Good thing we don't have any hidden tension in our country. As we honor and as we celebrate the life and work of Dr. King, we must rightly acknowledge that the battle that he fought for and died is not over. It's not over in the form of overt, covert, institutional, systematic racism. Now, as a church, we acknowledge there are hundreds of gradients of ambiguity when it comes to partisan nature of the political world. And as ambassadors of the kingdom, we don't have a responsibility to speak into how the political system works. We are ambassadors of a different kingdom. And we don't claim to have answers for um, how, how the government is going to deal with things like tax reform or immigration or any number of other issues. And um, the reality is caring and smart and moral people have disagreements on those things of how they get worked out. And it is also true that as ambassadors of this kingdom, we proclaim without reservation that our battle is never against flesh and blood. That we are to harbor no animosity toward anybody, toward any politician, including our president. We are instead commanded to love all people at all times, no ifs, ands, or buts. Because the hope of the world has nothing to do with hating the right people. The hope of the world is about loving all people. But... At the same time, it is our responsibility as ambassadors of this kingdom to declare what is and is not consistent with that kingdom. And racism is undoubtedly not consistent with that kingdom. Racism is rather something we are called to passionately resist because racism ultimately is the very embodiment of the principalities and powers that we are called to fight against and struggle against. And to not do so is to become complicit. Here's what Dr. King says. He who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. 
He also said that the ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty of the bad people, but the silence over that by the good people. We at Woodland Hills Church are committed that we are not going to sweep under the rug when we see overt racism. And we are going to call it out as unequivocally antithetical to the kingdom of God when we see it. So, um, we, we need to have a bit of a, a room of vulnerability moment. Because the only way to intimacy goes through vulnerability. And we all heard something this week that can't go unaddressed. For anyone, Republican, Democrat, Communist, Independent Party, to parse up who is welcome in our country along nationalistic lines, and then further to use those lines to divide along racial lines, to include somebody who maybe has a lighter skin while we're excluding somebody who maybe has a darker skin, and to refer to whole countries from Haiti, for Africa, anywhere in the world as S-whole countries. It's racism. It's racism, pure and simple. It is using a position of power and superiority to demean, belittle, and make significant in other people. It is the ultimate us versus them. And the reality is, it does not matter if it comes from a Republican. It doesn't matter if it comes from a Democrat. It doesn't matter if it comes from a communist. It doesn't matter if it comes from an alien. It is racism. And it is our job as kingdom people to fight against it in any way we can. And it flies directly in the face of the God revealed to us in Jesus. About whom his original disciples said of Jesus, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus' own hometown. Because the Bible tells us on the cross that Jesus died to tear down all the walls that divide us. To tear down every wall that gets in the way to parse up humanity. And he died to create one new, beautiful, colorful kingdom of God that would actually bring peace to all people. He died to inaugurate a kingdom where there is no longer any male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, Haitian or Nicaraguan or African or European or North Korean or South Korean. All of those distinctions are utterly meaningless. If somebody is white, black, brown or any shade in between, they are part of this one new humanity. And in Christ, all those distinctions are meaningless. And the truth is, in light of Christ, we have to proclaim there is no such thing as an S-hole country. For God is the Lord of every nation and every people and every group and there is nothing that changes that because everybody is made in the beautiful image of our beautiful God. And people of God, it is our job to walk and live in such a way that makes this truth known that breaks through any racist mentality wherever we find it and actually uses this S-hole language as a fertilizer to revolt against all forms of oppression, anything that is injustice towards somebody who is getting left on the outside. And so, as kingdom people, whatever any politician may say, I want to say to my Haitian brothers and sisters who are here or watching this, we honor you. We welcome you. We give thanks to God for you. And we need you as a part of this community and a part of the kingdom. And to my African brothers and sisters, I honor you. We welcome you. We are grateful to God for you and we need you. 
To my brothers and sisters from El Salvador, we honor you. We need you. We are grateful to God for you. And we welcome you. And to my Norwegian brothers and sisters, we honor you. We welcome you. We give thanks to God for you. And we need you. Because to the degree that we sweep things under the rug, we actually fall into the lie. And the lie continues, and the performing continues, and the hiding continues, and the dying continues. Because there is a need for liberation for the oppressed and the oppressor. Here's how Dr. King says it, and it was read earlier, but it's so good. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will perish together as fools. We are tied together in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable net of mutuality. Whatever affects one directly affects us all. And for some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And I can never be what you, you can never be what you ought to be till I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. That if I am not feeling the pain of my brothers and sisters, then I, it's actually hurting us all. And these moments like this week or these moments like Charlottesville or these moments where uh, another African-American is unarmed and is shot, like these are, these are moments where the, the, the iceberg comes above the waterline, but they are symptoms of something that my brothers and sisters of color experience on a daily basis. This racial fear, this mistrust, this bias, and it gets perpetuated and perpetuated because we don't know each other. We live in an, a room of hiddenness. And I think Dr. King would say the church is where that needs to stop. That the church is where that needs to stop, where we need to actually start beginning to build deep, trusting relationships across ethnic lines. And here's another quote from Dr. King. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals. And for folks like me, folks who would identify as white, I think it begins with three things. It starts by getting uncomfortable in conversations I don't want to have. It starts by unlearning my innocence because I am complicit. I have benefited from other people being pushed down. And it starts by me dying to whiteness as an identifier. Because whiteness is ultimately so insignificant compared with who God says I am. And to the degree that I use that as an identifier, it actually starts to separate us rather than unite us. And our job is to do everything we can so that this one new humanity actually looks and feels like one new humanity. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And for those in this room who are people of color, it means, against all odds, being willing to trust some people who look like me. Despite all the reasons you might have been given and all the valid reasons why you wouldn't want to trust somebody who looks like me, it means starting to walk towards each other more and starting to unite because this is what it looks like to walk in the room of vulnerability, to show up as we really are, not as we should be because we're never going to be as we should be. So, as we close, I'm going to ask that you would stand. Um, and I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come up. Um, if there's anything you could use prayer for, if there's something in those questions of what are you hiding, 
and you need to just get it out. There's confidentiality in these conversations. They'd love to have them with you. If, if you've never been introduced to this beautiful God who breaks down all the barriers, these folks would love to introduce you to him. So, like I do, I have a couple questions. <laughs> Are you getting your life from Christ? Because to the degree that we are not, we end up sucking life from everybody around us. And we want to be people to get it all from God. And what would it look like for you to go deeper in your relationships? Particularly with someone across an ethnic or a racial line. What would it look like to sit down and say, could you tell me your story? Or what would it look like to say, you know, I heard all this stuff this week. What did you think about that? How did you process all that? Because we need to hear each other, because when we don't communicate with each other, we don't know each other. So my prayer for us, Woodland Hills, is that as we leave, we would manifest the one new humanity of God, and we would be filled with the love of God so that we walk out in the world flowing with the love of God and bring reconciliation and peace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Have a good week.